And there we go. Okay. Welcome to the podcast, Serena. Well, hello. Thank you for inviting me. This is going to be fun. Dr. Serena. Dr. Dr. Sir, I know it's. I always get suspicious when people call me doctor. <laughs> when, when you see the PhD and then they say doctor and you're like, wait, oh yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm the doctor that makes treatments, but <laughs> if someone's like on an airplane dying and they're like, isn't there a doctor here? You know, you kind of have to raise your hand and be like, yeah, but I can't help. But if you want a presentation on something really cool. Well, it's. It's a PhD, so you know, in, in those emergencies where you need your philosophy work done, I can... <laughs> when someone's having a crisis and they need some philosophical <laughs> insights, I heard somewhere someone was saying that, like, in the origin, like the origination—that's a bad word—in the original uh, indoctrination of education, that the PhD was in fact the true doctorate degree, and that all have stemmed from that. I don't know how true that is, but you know. <laughs> It sounds like something that that would be cooked up in academia, doesn't it? Yeah, I was going to say like th that's the that's the hard part is because we like create the academic information and so right. they say like we've learned us. this. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> started with us. We're at the center. Yeah, that that's kind of like you know when the bridge when when you go from <laughs> undergraduate to graduate student to like postdoc, you have that realization of all of a sudden. First, you're just memorizing information, and then you see who makes the information, and then you just question everything that you've ever learned, and then you just have and this. And you're charged with contributing to the new information. Yes, yes. But then you just have like this blank slate of skepticism where everything that's said, you're just like, eh, maybe. Sounds good. <laughs> there's, there's evidence for things. Whether or not they're true is what you want to believe. But anyways, so you did your PhD in, was it, it was chemistry, right? Chemistry, yeah. Broad, oof, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I said I'm sorry. No, I'm kidding. no, no it's, it was really cool. Um, it's it was all theoretical. I did you know do some lab work, but that wasn't my concentration. Um, it was mostly organic chemistry. Um, oh. And I blended in computer science with it. It's I had um, you know played around with computers since a pretty early age, and so I never wanted to spend the rest of my life doing only computer science. So I wanted to get into physical science. What fascinated me about chemistry, um, I was interested in, in, in two things, using computers to create new materials and new molecules and, and mm. actually apply AI to the invention of new substances. Um, but also I was quite fascinated on um, how such small molecules can have such a profound effect on perception. And I wanted to understand that from the bottom up. So it was pretty, you, you must've been one of the early adopters then of some of the more analytical or not analytical, some of the more like AI based modeling of scientific things, or is that more, was well, that more was, integrated? In? There was a romance period with neural networks in the eighties and, and early nineties. And, um, I, I, that's where I first encountered them and started to play. I was an un, in undergrad and uh, started to play with you know, different models. And, uh, okay, well, this, you know, McCulloch pitts neuron, that's fine. Let's do some other things. Um, but, yeah, the, you know, the computational resources were, you know, foreboding at that time. And um, it was most, they were mostly little toys. <laughs> Compared to what they are now. Well, um it is interesting how much progress has been made by scaling these things up. I'm 
amazed that backprop is still around. Um, but, uh, you know, impressive at scale. Um, yeah. So, so with the, so with mixing, you know, the chemistry together with computationalists, I know with physiology, you know, with, with the sort of my subdiscipline of physiology or neuroscience in the seventies and the eighties, there was kind of, uh, this segregation between some of the research fields of being, you had sort of the engineering based approaches to create either in silico models or some sort of computational networks in order to predict how biological systems work. And the throughput of those is just unmatched compared to biological, you know, actual wet lab type of sciences. And then you had the experimentalists that were putting in surgeries and testing out ideas and testing out theories, whether it be through you know, patch clamping to record single neurons or trying to get some crude rudimentary idea of a whole neural network together with some of these more interventional strategies. But, but regardless, there was, it was sort of split and the two didn't mix very well until all of a sudden, I, I don't know what happened around somewhere in the nineties. I know at least in the breathing field, there was this realization that actually some of these models are kind of correct and they save us a heck of a lot of time, you know, <laughs> And, and so, you know, being on sort of the, the engineering type of side of, of that, did you, do you notice like how, how, how were you able to, you know, create the ideas of, Hey, let's take some chemistry, which is, you know, most people just think of solutions in a tube that change colors and be able to implement that into a, uh, you know, a, a computational type of system. So, yeah, so um, so after I graduated, I went to IBM Research in Yorktown Heights, and I was in the Computational Bio, uh, Biology Center. Now, IBM at that time was coming out with a new class of supercomputer called the Blue Gene Supercomputer. And um, it was a very aggressive architecture at the time. And, you know, there was a mandate to show that it could actually really advance these, um, you know, grand challenge problems. And so, um, there was, there was funding, research funding that I jumped on. Um, the grand challenge of the day was protein folding and function. And so I, um, I, I pursued, um, membrane protein function. Mm. At an area where, you know, in from the investor side, okay, we're going to use this new massively parallel architecture to do real science, and we'll get that, you know, into the primary literature, and 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 we'll showcase these new machines. But it was a wonderful opportunity to um, apply large-scale computing, molecular dynamics in particular, to uh, the activation of a really important class of, of uh, receptors, the G protein coupled receptors. And uh, Rhodopsin was the, the system that I focused on. And we made some really impressive discoveries that were predictions from simulation at first. Um, and then, as you were alluding to in the difficulties of experimental design, it took about 10 years later to verify those predictions in the lab. Yeah. So, so for those that are unaware, Rhodopsins, were you, so were you dealing with so rhodopsins basically are light sensitive proteins, right? Is that the is easiest the, way to yeah, say it? 
uh, for dark vision in the mammalian eye, um, it is the protein that actually captures the photon and initiates the, the signal transduction process that results in you actually seeing something. Yeah. So were you, so when you were studying these, were these biological options that were taken from samples and then isolated? Yeah. yeah. In the lab, they, they get cow bovine, you know, sources, cow ah. and actually <laughs> grind them up and, um, isolate the rhodopsin and, and take their measurements. But the crystal ah. structure, yeah, the crystal computationally, we, you know, we start with a crystal structure. The challenge in modeling that system was actually getting a, um, a reasonable membrane environment for that system. Um, we had to, um, carefully prepare a, a, with, you know, several protocols and independently confirm to what's known about structure and dynamics of membranes, um, to convince ourselves that, you know, we're not, you know, completely, completely off. Cause ultimately, What's what makes a prediction a, a theoretical prediction is important is if you can ex, uh, connect to experiment. And there were many stages of experiments that we had to connect to to build up confidence that our model was anything reasonable, uh, re reasonably representative of the, the actual system. Um, so there was, uh, you know, basic biophysics and membrane biophysics, you know, data that we run these simulations and prepare um, order parameter or calculations and have to compare that to experiment and build up, you know, we have uh, a reasonable model of biological membranes. And mm. then bringing the actual rhodopsin receptor to equilibration with explicit water in a reasonable um, ionic environment. There's a lot of work. But... <laughs> As an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> What was fascinating about it is the collaboration that was, um, that we put in place. I, uh, it, it's, it was interesting to, from industry to approach the academic community with, with your own supercomputer. Um, you know, show up and, and say, Hey, let's, let's do something really cool. Have you got any ideas? But, you know, when we started with that, bringing, you know, what would, generally happen is, you know, the old experts would dust off their grant proposals and say, just give me the machine and we'll do it this way. Well, no, mm. that's not quite what we had in mind. Uh, we may actually have to work together on this. Um, <laughs> so finding, you know, finding an actual collaboration that was functional between academic experimentalists with the appropriate labs that could make the appropriate measurements and, um, and, you know, where we could handle the theoretical side of the computation on this aggressive new architecture. Um, that, that was really, you know, some fascinating human aspects. Um, a lot of politics, a lot of, a lot of fundraising, a lot of, a lot of everything. A lot of non-disclosure agreements. <laughs> not, not necessarily, because the whole point was we're going to publish. We're not going to hide. Oh, uh, yeah. And, which is great. I'll always jump on that opportunity. And say, like, I don't have to keep my mouth shut for anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then you went from that and then, so how did you transition from that to designing missile systems? You knew that was <laughs> going to come up. <laughs> so, um, so I was at IBM research for 18 years. Um, and that was, uh, 
that was a wonderful environment to be in. Definitely a publisher parish environment, um, but but uh, very much a business oriented slant to it. And um, I went through several application areas. Um, you know, asked me about Shazam one day, but <laughs> <laughs> the um, that came to an end in 2013. And uh, I uh, was, I started, of course, you know, 18 years of doing research industrially, you get out on your own and you got a, you got a backlog of things you want to try. And I, I did a tour of um, trying to start a research organization. Boy, uh, that didn't work so well, but I was very interested in uh, reducing atmospheric, capturing atmospheric CO2 and reducing it to uh, methanol or fuel grade as a starting material for further further synthesis that would be carbon negative overall. Oh. Um, a lot of fascinating research. Um, didn't spend a lot of time looking so you, at documents. You weren't a fan of our research when we were just pumping loads and loads of CO2 into a box, which then ultimately had to be wafted out of the vents. <laughs> well, when we burn, you know, we burn stuff. That's where it goes. We metabolize it. So it goes like that. I mean, um, I thought it would be easier to capture it and recycle it than actually convince people to change their ways. Yeah. I still think that, but. That makes sense. Yeah. We were, uh, I forget how much we were using, like, like 120 liters of compressed CO2 every two days ish. <laughs> well, we had to keep the goats. We So we had goats in environmental chambers that we had to keep yeah. them at an elevated level of CO2 to mimic some of the effects of, of COPD or emphysema or anything like that. Well, did you com commute to work every day? You probably burned more. Hmm. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> the, the, uh, the CO2 that we were pumping in there was, you know, it was actually kind of interesting to figure out though, how much CO2 an animal breathing in an enclosed environment can actually create because you know, you, you think about even if you're sitting in your car and you put like on the air recycler, you know, the, the little button mm -hmm. that has, yeah, that, and I didn't realize that the CO2 can build up pretty high in your car. If you're, you have that on the recycler and you're going oh, for yeah. a given distance. And, you know, so when we put the goat in the box and we started putting a, we, essentially we just had a big compressed doer of gas, which is just like a gigantic gas tank. And we had to run it through a, a flow valve and then we ran it into, we just made like a homemade um, humidifier. So it just like bubbled the gas through, through, through a water tank or a water column. And then it went into the, uh, the chamber and then we honestly, we just cut a little hole in the top and then we put a fan on top of it and just set, so that we kind of cycle the, the air a little bit. And, and the, you know, the amount of gas that we calculated that we were going to need was so much higher than what we actually ended up needing because the goat itself was contributing so much CO2 just to, <laughs> you know, just to itself that we actually ended up using a lot less gas than we thought. But anyways, well, it was, cool. and that was, well, that was the, the problem was in, in the control chamber because we had to have an antechamber that was served as a control where we would also have goats in there and they would be at room air. And, you know, so we thought, we're going to put the goat in and we'll cut a drill a few holes in the chamber. No big deal. It'll be perfect. And then we had to, you know, we started doing the measurements. We we're like, why is this like the goats 
don't look all that different. And so, you know, you start drilling holes in and by the end there it's like just Swiss cheese walls, you know, in order to try to get oh, the wow. CO2 down. And so it was, well, it would be some fraction of what they ate, right? The carbon in what they ate. Yeah. Yeah. It would have to be it's, it's, some fraction yeah. of that and their metabolic rate. Yeah. So it was, anyways, it was a interesting thing to try to figure that out. We're good. We have power now. Speaking of power, the powerhouse of the cells of the mitochondria, but of the brain, some might argue are the astrocytes. Okay. So I've heard, I've heard a rumor that if you say astrocytes three times that Serena comes running and, uh, and it seemed to be true make it on the first or second. Yeah. So anyways, this is like for, for those that are unaware. So Serena and I met through clubhouse, which was this audio based app and we had some scientific discussions. And so I was hosting these scientific things that usually were pretty sawed off and went off the cuff most of the time. And, uh, which I thought was fun because to see some of the wild theories that people have about consciousness in the world is just insane. And, and I, you know, being a molecular, not necessarily molecular, but a cellular neuroscientist, I had no idea about the behavioral stuff. It was like neurons go pop, bang, boom. And then suddenly Serena entered the room and started talking about astrocytes. And you can usually tell pretty fast whether or not the person has scientific experience in the best way possible to say, you know, there's just sort of that undue skepticism that is there and, and sort of that understanding of what is good evidence and what is bad evidence and what are just thoughts. Um, anyways, it became apparent pretty quick. I was like, wait a minute, Serena knows what they're talking about very well. And so I am going to grill this person a little bit and try to figure out, you know, what it is actually that is going on with these astrocytes. And, um, and so anyways, how did you become interested in these, you know, typically thought of as support cells within the brain? Uh-huh. Okay. This <laughs> so this, I'm going to, that was a little dig right there at the end. <laughs> oh, and I'm going to be coming back to that. You know, oh, I know. <laughs> Yeah, the housewives of the brain, right? We'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> so um, that's why I'm standing in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah, that was noticed. <laughs> Let's go right in. Talk about astrocytes. Go right into the kitchen. Well, so this story does actually loop around through why I'm doing missiles for a living at, at the moment. Um. So I um. I've been in the defense industry for about seven years. And uh, early on, there was an interest. I got involved. It was a, um, you know, what what we can say about it is it was, a, it was a DARPA program looking for ways of advancing collaborative autonomy. And what that means is, um, as scary as it sounds, uh, missiles working together without necessarily humans controlling them. So, um, in there was initially a classical AI approach. Um, I, I, um, moved to a different defense contractor, but I stayed in the same area because the, um, the effort that the program was sponsoring was multi-vendor. And because they really do want to bring all of the, you know, competing contractors together and have a consistent solution for the warfighter, as we say in the industry. So no kidding, this was advancing 
AI in real systems, um, not as large language models or chatbots, but actual um, war capability. And you know, of course, I, I'm kind of this hippie from California, and it was a, never really imagined that I'd be in the defense industry. And uh, you know, kind of, kind of came to it, but. The opportunity for um, large-scale, real-world systems deployed, working together. You know, there's no shortage of Skynet jokes where I work, by the way. <laughs> but this was uh, actually advancing the capability. And I've managed to stay in that for, for several years now. The um, Using AI models, the AI models that we have, and, and, you know, over these last seven years, we've seen quite a renaissance in capability from AI, uh, both in the generative AI and, you know, image um, generation, interpretation from sec from text. So what's, so, so what yeah. is like, if there's a best way to describe the difference between, I think, cause right now with the explosion of chat GPT and all of the image generators, you know, there's these sort of large language models or these prompt mm -hmm. generation type of AI systems, but AI expands well beyond just those yeah. type of, of models. So is there like a good way to just explain what AI is in general, like for the different concepts? What AI is in general, it's an attempt to, um, in essence, uh, develop computer systems that are intelligent and learn based on a, a loose and simple biological metaphor. And uh, a great deal of history in, in more classical machine learning techniques, regression and, and so forth, and feature extraction, classification. But the um, we're going to get into my biases here really quick. The reason why we don't really see such advances in the art of war is because of the need for these models. They learn very slow, very clunky, and they don't generalize very well. So they need massive amounts of data and massive amounts of training. And even then they're sort of within, they don't necessarily perform outside their space. The art of war is all about surprise. If there's a pattern with a lot of data, then you're probably not going to necessarily encounter it. I, um, and it and uh, that's so, wild. So basically, like, yeah, so so like a lot of the AI, and this is well outside my wheelhouse, so walk me through this one. So like a lot of the AI systems themselves need a huge training data set in order to actually function very well. So like with ChatGPT, when they rolled out, you know, that that free version for people to test out, like it was the amount that flooded in and just filtered or just funneled in data on, well, on it, users. It, it got to mine over most of what was on the internet already. Yeah. Uh, and, and so like it, you can, I, I know there's that page that shows all of the different generative AIs and the parameters and the data sets that, you know, are involved in them. And you can see the, however many trillions of data points they have for models versus the other right. ones. And you can almost look at the performances almost completely linearly related to the amount of training data that's been put into it. So the whole idea of defeating an adversary is surprising them with things they weren't expecting. 
and if you have too much training data, they already know it's coming. Well, it, you know, think of it in terms of financial markets. You know, you got it. You got a plan. You're going to trade on. If you see a pattern, you're going to trade on it. But if everybody else is watching the same pattern, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it's why it's, it, you know, it's tricky. It's tricky because you've got a lot of people all competing for that, you know, to predict what everybody else is going to do and trade against them. You do the, the, the lesser idiot model of trading where it's like <laughs> yeah. you see the trend and you just hope that you can jump off it faster than. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of let's, what do we need out of AI for an actual competitive capability in an adversarial situation? We need it to understand and generalize and learn from very few examples. And that's a current weakness with contemporary models relative to biological systems. We don't, you know, they don't get to explore all possible, you know, outcomes and, and they don't get a million examples. You get a couple and you, and yeah. you got to generalize. Um, so there, so looking for what is that deeper biological metaphor that the AI models are missing? And that's where I started getting interested in astrocytes. Ah, the lesser studied of the, the brain cells. <laughs> Lo and behold, what was thought to be the housewife is actually kind of useful in a yeah. logical sense. The housewife thing is kind of funny because, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll joke about neuroscience being so neurocentric and how... Um, even the models of neuron, you know, Hodgkin Huxley, you know, the, the assumption of the external environment, um, you know, oh, have, have, have all the potassium buffering capacity you like. No, no problem. No problem. I'll have all the energy you need. Whatever excites you, you've got all the energy you need to just, you know, say what you want. The, um, the care and feeding of neurons, the, the interaction of neurons, the shaping of neurons, the, um, you know, in uh, the, their plasticity, um, these cells, almost half the cells in the brain, uh, glial cells, uh, which astrocytes are within the group, they, uh, as I started to understand what the, um, the newer science that we're learning about them is really unveiling, is that they're playing a much more intimate role in the actual information processing that the brain is. Um, and we're going to get into a lot of conjectures, so I'm going to say that up front. But um, what was interesting about uh, understanding um, some of the recent work that's come out with astrocytes is that they're, um, they provide a, a spatial context, for one, they tend to drive neural synchrony of many, many synapses, many neurons firing. And, um, you know, we'll, we, can, we can get into this. I don't want to get too far off in the weeds. But the... Uh, it's I'm easy kidding. to do that with these topics. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so hang on. So just to make sure that I'm still in the loop. So we've gone from, we, so we have missile systems that need somehow to have accurate types of navigation systems or something like that without uh, having a huge 
input of data. So there needs to be some sort of generalized type of input or output, whatever the AI proper term is for that. And then we've gone to, because many AI systems are biological based as far as for a lot of how they, they're, they're trying to emulate some of the biological intelligence networks. So there's like that intricate relationship between that mm-hmm. and the brain. And so now we've moved to, there needs to be something that can sort of bolster the ability of these dumb little neurons within the brain in order to actually create some sort of syncytial network that can can be working together. And in come the astrocytes that, of course, are now more than just the housewife cells of the of the of the brain, <laughs> but actually have some sort of deeper functions. Is that right? Yeah, and I like how you 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 seeded that with the syncytial network. Um, that what what's so what we know about neurons? They you know they got the dendrites that form these can be you know these extensive arborizations and reach out and they get inputs from many many sources. They they integrate that and and have outputs in terms of spiking rates and and, and timings. The um, the particular structure, uh, well, what I want to say about astrocytes is they tile. They ten- they take on a spatial domain, and they connect many many neurons uh, together in the sense that they form what's called a tripartite synapse. So they express um, a lot of the same receptors. So depending on the neuron type and the synapse type and the neurotransmitters going across those synapses, the astrocytes express those receptors as well. So they're listening in on everything the neurons are saying. They're, um, they, re- they respond in- internally in-, in terms of calcium oscillations. And they're connected to each other isoelectronically through gap junctions. And, um, since they control spatial domains and they um, and these calcium waves can resonate and propagate throughout space, it's a complementary dual in a sense that the topology of connectivity expressed in, in the neurons is complemented by the spatial uh, domain and um, it's the word I'm looking for, but this this sensational activity mm. through space. And that function of driving neural synchrony that appears to be uh, a big role that astrocytes are playing that's newly appreciated has um, interesting consequences in terms of uh, which which aren't represented in the models. Um, it may be some a type of game control, which is a very important aspect in real systems. Um, flight systems is um, in, in, in any type of control system is how you control the gains, how you schedule that and how you predict the uh, the real environment you're about to encounter so you can overcome latencies and respond correctly at the appropriate time. But the um, being able to modulate um, signaling throughout space and spatial domains allows um, regions of, of neurons to come in and out of synchrony. And mm. that itself is something that um, goes beyond the topology of the neural architecture as a through space interaction. 
So, you know, what's, what's interesting with that is that, um, so for one of my studies, we were looking at the amount of network excitation relative to the synchrony of a rhythmic neural network. And we were using, we're using the, the, the breathing respiratory rhythm generator in the brainstem as, as a model for a rhythmic neural network, right? Because it generates these rhythmic bursts that make you breathe. And when you, when you change the potassium level in the, the slice solution from three up to like 12 millimolar potassium, basically like you have, you put the slice brainstem slice in a dish. There's no bursting originally in three millimolar potassium. There's not much. And then <clears throat> because you've removed all of the excitatory synaptic inputs that are usually going into there. But then as you stepwise increase the potassium concentration, that network starts to synchronize up. And so it starts to originally starts these like weak sort of bursts. You have like big bursts, little bursts, a little erratic. It's just like it's like, you know, it's a uh, it's like if you have a, a dirty carburetor and you're trying to pull start an engine and it's just like, wah, bah, 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 you know, it just sort of like kind of tries to do it, but it doesn't work. And then suddenly you get to that sweet spot, which is usually around eight or so millimolar of potassium in the extracellular fluid of this, of the slice. And you get these beautiful, just big, boo, boo, you know, these, these right. gigantic synchronous bursts that are transmitted to motor output. And then you start to go beyond that and it starts to just become erratic and go into a seizure. And, and so it, it's interesting that, you know, bringing in the idea of astrocytes, especially cause you know, one of the things that they modulate is the potassium levels around there, but not only that, but they create, you know, these big, calcium waves that you're talking about it's almost like if you take a bed sheet and you just give it one of those good shakes there's like this big wave of activity that goes through mm -hmm. the brain but being able to depending on the astrocytic level of excitation be able to make certain brain regions easier or harder to recruit during behavior i assume that exponentially increases the amount of um available patterns that might be able to be used within brain activation states, I assume. And, and I, and I think, I mean, there's, there's capability, certainly that exponential, that nonlinear part, there's, there's, there's gotta be capabilities there that evolution has capitalized on. And, you know, that, that I think our models could improve with the appropriate insights there. Um, for example, frequency and phase in these models isn't really in the AI models isn't really represented. It's these you know feed forward. They some in some cases there's recurrent networks, but you know timing and um, and phase we see a lot of information processing in or in natural systems um, has to do with uh, you know these brain rhythms. And, um, you know, the frequency and when, when there's phase lock and certain frequencies and, and, um, so the actual entry point of, uh, where I thought there's, a you know, a, a novel improvement in the AI models is just even the introduction of frequency and phase in the processing, which really sort of implies the, the spatial, embedding and um you know i don't know of any ai model that uh is more than topological is it has any topography to it is there is it embedded in space or not but the moment it does get embedded in space then suddenly where 
something is computed matters or where where events occur matter because space has context <laughs> i just i think i when i was learning python which <laughs> don't don't get me wrong i still have the python ability of like a sixth grader but uh i can at least read it and i can use it right um i was doing something whatever some data science thing with a data sheet and and, and uh i went Obviously, I went over to IT because I was lost. I kept, you know, after your like 30th error message, you're like, well, to hell with this. I'm either throwing the laptop out the window or I'm going to go get IT. And uh, <clears throat> the guy looked at me straight in the face and he said, you're thinking in the wrong dimension. And I said, <laughs> sir, I have been told that I am wrong in many, many, many different ways. I had an old PhD advisor, and he had some creative ways of telling you that you were wrong. I have never been told that I was thinking in the wrong dimension. <laughs> you got your dimension all wrong. I'm, it's like, yeah, and he looked at me as if that was like the solution. You're thinking in the wrong dimension. I, I'm like, grab my computer. I turned around. And I was like, option A of throwing this out the window is becoming more and more enticing. <laughs> Anyways, so being able to incorporate topology into topography. Oh, topography, not yeah. Actually, um, you know, giving a spatial context to things like this. This, you know, this doesn't happen in this neighborhood. You're on the wrong block, pal. We're going <laughs> to shut you down. You know, actual giving space a context, an environmental context that doesn't within an AI system. Within an AI system, God, that's, that's what astrocytes. That was the initial attraction that there is this whole group of cells that have their own evolutionary history and their own roles and different stages of development. They, well, you know, they can form, you know, or they can encourage the budding of new synapses. They can, they can toe tag something and have microglia come in and clear out entire arborization. Um, so they, they, I kept uncovering their functions as control systems for the particular topology and dynamic um, management systems for region the regions of space that they control so it almost like it's almost like it you know it kind of amplifies not amplifies but it basically like basic neuronal just a, a simple neural system is almost like a binary type of on off and especially if you're just looking at a, a complex code of a bunch of different things that can go on off, that gives, it only gives you so much depth that you can have, right? And so are you saying like when you add the astrocytes in there, you're almost like creating different modulations of those inputs so it becomes, you know, let's say more complex than just a simple binary on-off type of answer? Is that an well, easy way to put it? I think... Um, Maybe I'm wrong. So I... I've never been afraid to dive into complexity. That's part of what I get in chemistry. Yeah. Is, you know, you can draw a simple molecule, but that's not what's going on. It's in this whole environment and everything is like, yeah. Well, um, us, us dumb neuroscientists that we haven't calibrated our scale, you know, that we measured <laughs> chemicals on in the you're, last You're thinking years. in the wrong dimension. <laughs> as, as I'm dumping buckets of potassium chloride on cells and just like, ah, we'll see what happens. See what happens. No, but the um, we got a new vendor. It's it's close enough. It's KCL somewhere in there. <laughs> well, I think uh, in order to appreciate astrocytes, you have to think of many neurons, and because um, so they they'll be because they 
they're, I mean, they're mostly sort of globular, but they have these fine processes and about 80 to 90% of their whole volume is these fine processes that reach out and touch uh, many synapses of many different neurons. About 140,000, by some estimates, um, synapses per astrocyte. Jesus, that's so mad. Which I believe because I, when we've done the staining for glia, like you're, you almost go blind when you fire up the microscope. <laughs> like, like, like just for reference for, for the listeners, like when you need to find something in the brain, you have to mark it and you usually mark it with something that makes the proteins glow. And you, you do that for neurons and it's, you mark all the neurons in the brain and it's like these cool little dots that are all over the place. And then you do a marker for astrocytes, whether it's aldehyde dehydrogenase or glial fibrillary acidic protein, whatever you fire up that scope and it's just like the Vegas strip just hits you. There are so many astrocytes <laughs> and each one can have like 120, 200,000 connections to synapses. That's right. ridiculous. And, and they don't overlap very much. They, they own their own spatial domain. So like all a black of, walnut tree. <laughs> yeah. Kill all, everything else. <laughs> you know, imagine all of the, uh, you know, the neurons in that domain, 140,000 neurons, if their function is to drive neural synchrony, again, and these neurons don't have to be directly connected, right, right there, there is a contextual means of signal popping, in a sense, that, um, you know, if the local rhythm is established, it becomes, you know, they have a means of sensitizing neurons and in and amplifying in a very nonlinear way the coordination of populations of neurons. So um, so to appreciate them, it's really not a neurocentric or astrocytic centric approach. It's um, I like to say I like to think of it as a dialogue between the astrocytes and the neurons for the overall network function and bringing in spatial context and temporal context to the the information that the neurons are propagating is the direction I think our, our AI models could improve with. Hmm. Especially, well, because so is it, are most of the AI models now, at least that you're familiar with, largely strictly neuronal based without any sort of astrocytic type of function in there? There was an interesting paper that showed that the, our recent, you know, our recent favorite transformer models. Yeah. Um, there was an attempt to mathematically relate the, um, you know, the attentional processes to to astrocytes, which was kind of cute. I mean, it was a, um, it was not completely convincing, but uh, it was a very interesting statement that. Um, certainly for the astrocyte folks, <laughs> you know, yeah, all, you like all these transformers, chat GBT, and um, yeah, the, the difference was astrocytes and, you know, attention is all that matters and yada, yada, yada. The role of astrocytes in attention um, and, and, uh, and regulation of focus is really fascinating too. Where there's a lot of recent work. And again, I got into this, um, has an interest following how we might improve on AI models and, you know, not formally doing astrocyte research professionally like, like you are, Nick. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm doing it like as a, I have astrocyte side hustle, you know, <laughs> my primary, <laughs> I'm, you know, I straddle the neuro and the physiological systems. So much. I, I like to say like, I sit at the neck, you know, it's like, it's kind of brain kind of body. It's just like that fine balance. How does the brain influence the body? How does the body influence the brain and how can something going wrong in one influence the other? That's where I sit. And so like some of the projects, obviously breathing is a primary model for that. And that's why I study that. But, but, you know, some of the work that, that our group has done, and, and we certainly have publications in review looking at astrocytes as sort of a um, mechanism that creates amplification of breathing, certain breaths known as the physiological size. So, you know, what Serena does every time that I start to talk about neural networks, because yeah. it's like, yeah, my, I have no experience with that, but other than, you know, typing into chat GPT, like what should I make for dinner? Uh, but I have this and like, take a picture of my fridge, like help me out here. But anyways, um, the idea was that, you know, so you have these physiological size that are occurring rhythmically, somewhat rhythmically um, or sporadically. But the idea is that you take a bigger breath every once in a while to prevent something known as atelectasis, which is the collapse, the closure of alveoli. So like what most people don't know is a lot of space in your lungs is not always filled with air because your lungs are really, you know, there is some air that's trapped in there for the most part to keep them inflated. But a lot of times alveoli, which are these little, little, they look, look, look like grapes, but they, they, they are what take the gas from outside in the air and actually exchange it with the blood to keep you oxygenated. And every once in a while, a lot of them just start to collapse if you, you know, just because they're, the air is moving around in them and they have a really high surface tension. And so it just like starts to do that. And, and so you take these big breaths every once in a while to just sort of reinflate everything to kind of set it back to baseline. And uh, we got into astrocytes as being a, a mechanism that can cause these because there was some model that was saying that there's there's perhaps some sort of background wave of activity that's coursing through the brainstem and going up into cortical areas that when that wave, the peak of that wave hits at the same time that there's a burst of neuronal activity, within the area of the brainstem that causes breathing. When those two line up, you get this even bigger breath than you would normally, and it causes a sigh. And it was retained within the isolated slices, so you have no input. Like, you can't make, like, a brainstem slice in a dish mm -hmm. can't make itself breathe. It just breathes. It's kind of like the pacemaker in the heart. But, and so that's that's sort of where the idea came from. And it, and it, it got a little bit more complicated because that one's kind of hard to prove because you have to sort of measure the calcium waves and try to get it to, you know, to line up. And sort of the calcium imaging stuff with a live brain slice is a little bit difficult sometimes because things move around and and because uh, well, you need a constant circulating bath. And so, so, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so then we... We did some studies where you could stimulate the astrocytes themselves with optogenetics, mm -hmm. and, and when you did that, then you could simulate, then you could evoke a sigh, a sigh if you will. We can. So there, there was a direct relation between the sigh and the astrocyte. Yes, that when you stimulate the astrocytes, you don't stimulate breathing. That's the weird part: is that when you stimulate it, you don't really speed up your breaths or anything like that, but you increase the probability that you're going to evoke a sigh. 
And so basically like you hit the laser, which turns on all, all the astrocytes within the area and breathing doesn't really change that much. It's just, you keep uh-huh. breathing, you keep breathing. But the amount of times that you do this, <sighs> this big sigh happens like four times or so more than well, I don't so remember like, the exact let's action. Look at that. Let's look at that. If the function is to drive synchrony of what's happening in the neurons, they're listening to the neurons. And they're driving synchrony with, you know, the whole region. And they can, and regions talk to one another through these gap junctions. And, and you do, you're describing the psi as a very coordinated event all at once. And you're finding that astrocytes are, are a key player in that. What would it take for an AI, you know, contemporary model to suddenly coordinate across the entire network and all do something at once. That's, that's kind of hard to do. You get, you can get some really loud noise, but the coordinated behavior, I, I'm, I'm suspecting and you're measuring and confirming that it's the, the synchrony. Mm-hmm. And that's really what's important for the overall behavior. But I think it's important for, I think that's much more profound. Yeah. And that's, you know, we started to get into the, the mechanisms as to how it occurs. Like there's a release of, of ATP, xenazine triphosphate from the astrocytes that then can though, can then go and, and act on the receptors on the neuron. So basically, you know, so it still needs to be flushed out a little bit in the fact that there's this wave of calcium activity that goes through the astrocytes. So there's sort of just this blanket, like woof, that goes through that region of the brain. And along that, there are some neurotransmitters that are being released from the astrocytes that then sort of amplify what's going on in the neurons. And and, and at least in this area of the brain, it seems to transcend into these large, you know, these extra large bursts or augmented breaths that then go away because once you have this big kaboom, everything goes into a refraction period and then, you know, Mm -hmm. it goes on and the waves already passed by, you know. Well, in, in, in the wave is um, interesting in, the, in that uh, there's an initial detection um, either from an ex- extracellular um, neurotransmitter or calcium influx, but it's the calcium triggered calcium release from the, uh, from the ER. And the calcium stores flood into the cytoplasm as this wave so that the inside of the cell, of the astrocyte, it's 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 set up to um, you know trigger these calcium waves and they propagate and the pumps you know will rapidly restore the uh, the calcium stores in the ER and um, I mean that's that's it's a fascinating mechanism if what if if what if what's really happening is it's driving this synchrony and it's really the synchrony of the neurons firing that is underlying um you know the the advanced behaviors that we're trying to model yeah it's especially with uh with my research not not you know to to belabor that but a lot of what i look at is the excitability state of a network so whether it's more or less likely to be recruited during certain behavioral aspects and what are the mechanisms that make it more or less uh 
probable of being recruited. So a certain brain region, like if it has to fire, of course, it's it gets recruited as we call it, or it turns on, you know, uh, or it turns mm-hmm. off depending on the network. But but basically, like there's a probability of if you have an input of it creating. It, it propagating that signal down. So like every time the signal comes from one area to the brain, it goes to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, till it gets to the end product of some sort of motor pattern. And for every step along the way, there's a probability of whether or not that network is going to create the behavior that it needs to in order to propagate the signal. And so, you know, a lot of my work figures out what is it that sets the sensitivity of whether or not these things are going to be recruited and what are the mechanisms that are in place to actually maintain the ability of them to be recruited at the right time? Um, and so when those things start to get manipulated, which is like when you have drugs on on board, especially like for my work, look, look at opioids and things like it very much affects the probability of whether or not these networks are going to be functioning like they need to, or are they going to be able to fire when they need to fire? It's like when you need to take a breath, you have a bunch of opioids on board that are really like raising that threshold super high for that network to be able to turn on. Well, now we have a problem, you know, <laughs> and and I've conveniently to this point not looked so much at astrocytes yet. I think it's an interesting way to go about it to say, you know, we have these ideas that we can manipulate the excitability of these networks in exogenous ways, using drugs, using different potassium channel inhibitors, Mm -hmm. using potassium itself. But at some point, we have to move it into a physiologic system and to say, how the hell does the brain actually do this by itself? Because that's a completely different question. And we look at neuromodulators a lot. And I think think now the astrocytes are starting to get a little bit of feet to them, no pun intended. Uh, you know, starting to get some legs, yeah, starting to get some legs on it. It'll be interesting to see where it goes, at least from the biological field to say that, Hey, there's the, there's, you know, there are these neuromodulators that are being released from different areas of the brain to one from one area of the brain to another, and they can certainly raise or lower the threshold of firing, but typically they're going to, you know, elicit firing on or off for the most part, because they're going on the receptors and they're getting a big flood of activity. But sort of these, this, I mean, I hate to b- overuse the word wave, but sort of this like background raising and lowering of mm-hmm. the the excitability states of networks is a, an interesting concept. And I think it'll be cool going forward that it'll probably well, in- it, integrated more those, as we get better technologies. And those waves will have different spatial domains as well. Yeah. So like some can go up, like it's sort of, I like to think about it. Like if you're grabbing sort of a, a blanket, like somewhere in the middle, it's like parts of it are up, but the right. other parts are down. That's a terrible Or, and you've got different people holding different parts of the blanket and they're generating waves and like they have to, you get your interference patterns. It's like that high school. It's like that old high school thing where you're like shaking the, <laughs> the parachute, you know, you got all the kids and they like jump underneath. Right. Maybe elementary school. That's probably not high school. Well, I, and I like to think of analogies in the pool of making waves from different sides. And, you know, if there's multiple origins, you get, you know, the interference patterns and you get really cool things. But yeah, that's probably better. Yeah. <laughs> in, in each of those circumstances, um, you know, the waves themselves will have a certain size or length scale to them. And um, in, in, you know, high frequency, meaning, you know, small spatial domains, you've got a lot of little wave crests going up and down versus, you know, big waves that are, you know, have a much larger length scale. 
um, in one of the clubhouse rooms, you know, I covered, and you are, you are a reviewer too in that room. <laughs> That's yeah. a light way of saying that I was an ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, had, you had the most notable criticisms. How's that? I the, had criticisms. Well, but the, the, the thrust of the paper was the role of astrocytes in, in arousal and how norepinephrine would ex excite the neurons and, and induce these gamma oscillations. But that would also, where there was synchrony before, it in essence disorders the system into lots of you know splashes as opposed to coordinated waves. Mm -hmm. And the role that the astrocytes were you know reported to play was in restoring and driving the synchrony and restoring, you know, reducing the gamma oscillations back to theta. And in the process, the spatial domains became larger for these waves. Because oh, that's of the, right. That's right. Because of the increased neural synchrony. I forgot what my gripe was with that. I think it was either they I, didn't block them or they didn't stimulate the astrocytes. It was one of the two. I don't remember what it was. Well, yeah, you and the other you know, critic, who we all know and love. Um, <laughs> there, you thought of a, a, a really powerful experiment that would have just nailed it, and the authors didn't include it. Yes. So you, you dismissed the work entirely. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's, that was a heat of the moment kind of thing. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't a heat. It was. It was more like. There was this beautiful paper that postulated this really elegant hypothesis that was, you know, in science, there's few of these that come around where there's just this very elegant nature to the hypothesis where it just fits. Like it's very logical. <laughs> and, and like that, this is, this was it, right? You have these sort of crazy oscillations. Like you have this sort of, the brain is like always on the edge of synchrony, right? It's always just barely synchronized. And that, like being right on the outside gives it a lot of flexibility, which is nice, but it creates problems sometimes when we try to study it because if things are just barely being synchronized, going into a seizure is not that far away. And so like you need some mechanisms in order to, to make, you know, in order to prevent those desynchronizing activities to, to, to occur. So basically like, I like to think of it almost as like if you're in the grand Canyon or something like that, and you're trying to traverse down like a cliff, like if you go really slow and you start to step, like you're, you're, you're moving, but you're right on the brink of losing control. And then all of it, all it takes is like one little rock and then shoop, you're going down. <laughs> right. And so like, if you start to slide, like you need these mechanisms that come in to just put a block really fast to make sure that it doesn't go too far. And, right. and I think that that's fascinating. And I, in, in some of my studies are trying to figure out what those mechanisms are, but regardless, getting back to the, the paper, there was a, obvious experiment where they could have tested for that. And my suspicion was that it was excluded from the study by the fact that it didn't work because it was so blatantly obvious that that was the study that needed to be done. It was either <laughs> stimulate or inhibit the astrocytes. I don't remember what it was. And, uh, and it wasn't done. And, and my guess was that it, they did it and it just didn't work. So or that the graduate student doing the work graduated and wasn't interested in, in, in also also logical and much less nefarious. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, you know. 
Yeah, right. Now we have our own NIH that is like we have our own study section going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> One person going to bat and the other person just trashing it. But <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know, you read a paper and you like to think that, you know, the person doing all the work had all the time and money needed to do all the right things and had full control over over everything. And, you know, we know damn well that doesn't ever happen. Oh, no, that never happens. But it's, you know, it's funny, too, because it was. And it's still the hypothesis that I run with as of right now, even though it was somewhat, it wasn't proved because it wasn't published necessarily, but some of the evidence was suggesting otherwise. Basically, um, my longstanding uh, opinion about these, these physiological size, these big breaths, you know, was that you have synchronous bursting that's occurring from the brainstem, boom, boom, boom. And, but within that is sort of this dynamic, um, increase and decrease of synchronization. And so like it goes faster, it goes slower. And sometimes the amount of, um, what's the word that I'm looking for of chaos, whatever the amount of chaos, let's just go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, entropy, the amount of entropy within the network increases and decreases. Right. Uh And, and so, uh, intermixed on top of the increases and decreases in frequency itself are these sort of less synchronous patterns of entropy within the network. And, and so basically when you get to a critical threshold of, let's just say entropy, uh, just for the sake of completion, but basically like there's an amount of desynchronization that occurs within the network, then a psi comes in to boom, put everything back into a refractory period so that you can restart in the most synchronous pattern that there is. Because theoretically, the most synchronous pattern is going to be the one that it's going to default to. Well, let's pick up on that because um, I'd, I'd argue that was, the, that was the main result of this arousal paper in that yeah. the surprise, in this, in this case, it was a tail flick to a mouse, um, but the surprise was a gamma burst and a complete disorder and, and sort of a melting of whatever the mouse was doing or whatever was in the mouse, what was going on in its little head, um, that gamma burst sort of opens it all up. And, you know, if, if the astrocytes, as they report, are, are driving, are, are restoring synchrony, they're not necessarily putting the mouse back to what it was thinking about. What they, what they're doing is they're snapping into a new, frame an interpretation of their current situation and are better able to respond. Um, and it, it, it made a lot of sense that having that mechanism of let's whatever you're doing, boom, you get smacked upside the head. You're not doing it anymore. Figure it out. And, and the figuring it out part, which is so interesting, was the astrocytes restoring order from high frequency to low frequency and getting synchronicity, synchronicity, a new synchronicity, not the old resynchronicity, the, the, the new, the new stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which, which I think, I think if we had more analytical time with that project that we were doing, um, because a summer student that I had was, was running a lot of the analysis for the entropy measurements and things like that. And so, um, and she did really good, really great job, but it was just one of those we ran out of time. Um, we were well, finding, <laughs> yeah, see, <laughs> there, there we go. Now I go to publish. <laughs> I didn't, just do the right thing. I'm just, a, I'm just a, <laughs> let me hypocrite myself really fast. 
um, but yeah, we were we were finding that it it wasn't necessarily the case that it was more like the the psi itself would create more chaos, which then would then dissipate out by itself. So it was almost like it wasn't it didn't it wasn't lining up at least the way we were we were looking at it. But again, there's not that many good ways to measure entropy um, or chaos or we were doing primarily linear methods, so we would have so, to get a little bit. So, Nick, you're thinking in the wrong dimension. I was just going to say, we were thinking <laughs> in the wrong dimension. If we had a little bit more time to get a little bit more advanced and, I think, have a little bit more control. I think well, you, need, you need those spatial waves in, in characterizing, the, you know, the amplitude and frequency over space, perhaps. Yeah. And I think what we also needed, too, is that with bio with a lot of biological systems there's a lot of variability between animals and so like yeah. some of them sigh a lot some of them don't sigh a lot and mm-hmm. you know you're controlling for blood gases you're controlling for everything under the sun but i think for a, a a analysis like this you almost need to take each individual one and have a really long recording so that yeah. way you can have an idea of what's going on within the individual animal figure out the concept and see if it holds true not necessarily quantitatively but fundamentally across the animals. And then we would have something. We were taking old data sets that were recorded before my time here. And, mm-hmm. and basically we're saying we have all of these recordings of neural activity in a dish. Let's see how many times they sigh, you know? And so we only had like 30 minute recordings or so from every slice. And some of them sighed a lot. Some of them didn't sigh a lot. And so I think the variation was sort of killing us. But if we had taken each slice and had three hours of recording, you know, you have 30, yeah. 40 size that you can gain insight from, then I think we might've had a, a powerful study, but mm-hmm. that's how it goes. We Variation kills. Variation kills. <laughs> so anyways, <laughs> bringing it back to the AI models. Uh-huh. Okay. We, so now we have this concept of, of the, the astrocytes being able to do these magical things and to expand our thinking into different dimensions. How, you know, what, what would be the practical implication of actually expanding the, was it, it wasn't, it wasn't topography. It was the other one. It was. No, it was, it was topography. Oh, damn it. I should have just went with Well, it. topology is just the connectivity. Oh, yeah. And the topography is the, you know, the physical layout, the landscape. Yeah. So what is, the, what is the advantage of, of giving depth to the topology or topography whatever <laughs> the advantage or how would we get there i mean we uh, have so we well, have to have a, a spatial embedding so the we you know we suddenly are you know the neural networks rather than just a topology where you know this this node's connected to that node and it has this weight um there you you've got to spatially embed like actual physical circuits or or um you know actually you, you've got to worry about signals traveling through regions. What's not a good, I mean, astrocytes don't really map to circuits very well, I, I would say. But they're, they occupy the space in between all the circuits, all yeah. the components, in between the neurons. And they, and they mess with the electrostatic environment. They'll modulate things. They'll, they'll mess with the energy. They've got, you know, the analogy of energy to money. They, they're, they're funding the activities of the local region. They've got the food. They've, they've, they listen to what 
everything is being said, and they'll drive synchrony and they'll uh, induce plasticity or, or prevent it. Um, they can amplify signals or shunting. There's a lot of control, but I still think the important aspect is the dialogue between them because the information that neurons are propagating it brings in from over very large distances but the um the astrocytes operate very local locally mm. so so then i had I two questions well is this how it always works in the podcast it's like you hit an hour and it's like now i have all the questions in the world but <laughs> but uh so for so, so if we bring it back to, to, let's say, you know, we've added these things, we've, we've somehow figured out how to add the astrocytic type of dynamics into okay. an AI type of model, right? If for, first of all, for just for the general listener, that's aware of large language type of models or these generative AI type of outputs, mm -hmm. I can see how that might be able to increase or decrease the processing speeds or efficiency of some of the, um, networks by either increasing or decreasing local weights, perhaps, in order to sort of... Well, it would give a great deal of context, spatial context, to what a particular weight would be at any time. Yeah. And, 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 and um, you know, they, they would change over time at different frequencies. And so suddenly when, when many weights increase at the same time, you know, they may be on different frequencies, but they all come together at once. That would be, a, you know, a notable network event. Um, or at least a, a, a sensitivity. It would be a network sensitivity. So would that inc increase the efficiency of processing mainly? Or would it also be able to heighten the reasoning capabilities or something like that? Well... So, you know, we hope it's going to help, but getting, getting the, you know, getting there is going to be a much more expensive model uh -huh. uh, that will take a lot more processing power to embed something spatially. And, and this is where, um, you know, my chemistry background in these large scale, fully explicit atomistic simulations, uh, for hundreds of thousands of atoms. Yeah. You got, you know, you go there, you got to really, you know, it's expensive, you need um, high-performance computing resources, yada, yada, yada. Okay, you know, having gone through, you know, having my own supercomputer, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and knowing that, um, you know, that was in the early O's, there's exascale, you know, projects, you know, under construction. There's so many more resources available. And um, speaking of which, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say anything bad about working at IBM. I just wanted to put that out there. Oh, should I start? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, no, I really, it was a wonderful, Every, wonderful 18 years. Everyone that I've talked to that it's worked there, they always said it's always been like they've been there for 12 to 20 years or something like that. And <laughs> yeah, so it was, um, I mean, it changed quite a bit over that 18 years, but uh, it was, it was, I have nothing bad to say about it. Definitely. Um, the, uh, but, but it gets really, you can, it's going to get more expensive before it gets, gets cheaper. Mm -hmm. Um, embedding it spatially. Okay. Let's just say, and, you know, think the kinds of spatial computations, uh, fluid dynamics, molecular dynamics, 
you know, these, we, we know these code, we know how to do this. There's very efficient parallel codes to embed things spatially and, and compute, uh, rigorous physical phenomena with them. So if we're embedding a network spatially, then what do we put in that space? Of course, we're going to, we're going to model the astrocytes, but, um, the tricky part of constructing that model is, you know, how much is, is, uh, you know, just have, you know, full natural glory versus what are you really trying to model? And, um, what is the, you know, the least expensive approximation, approximate, hmm, approximation that captures what you're actually looking for. And so if we're going to, if we're going to have regional um, you know, astrocyte models for envi environments of space that can reach out and connect to, you know, many thousands, hundreds of thousands, and potentially um, synaptic weights in these artificial models and drive synchrony across them. Do we really need, uh, I would argue we don't need to model at the molecular level the details of which receptors or the neurotransmitters or or, you know, the individual ions. Let's mm -hmm. abstract that away. Perhaps approximate different neurotransmitter signaling pathways with different types of messages. But the biggest difference here is that where a message is and where it occurs and when it occurs now suddenly means something when it didn't before in any other model. And you get uh, what it, you would get interaction of different circuits that aren't necessarily connected because they they pass through a, a similar region of space and you know there's certain music playing in that there's rhythms there's there's activity going on in that neighborhood that's going to modulate them and so that's is that, is, mm -hmm. is there going to be you know this is all this is all hypothetical though but but let's say that that is let's say we've implemented it to that point right I assume there's going to be an even larger number of aberrant connections or aberrant type of um, outputs from that that would need to be trimmed off. And is uh -huh. that just a is that just a matter of training data? Oh, and or here we go. You know that you, you you talked about that one little rock that can send you tumbling down. Yeah, it's a slippery slope. So how are we? How would we even? set these systems up. One of the most difficult um, aspects of these large-scale spatial systems, CFD, as well as molecular dynamics, is all the setup time. Well, constructing, um, you know, thinking through, know, knowing how difficult it is to set these large-scale systems up, thinking through how might we grow such a system got me interested in taking a peek at our development, you know, how, yeah. do, how do we code up a system that will actually develop complex circuits? Uh. And, and what's so interesting about, you know, other glial cells, microglia and astrocytes is um, in peeking into our, our development, mammalian development, even, that, um, how how much how active pruning and processing and feedback of the neurons occurs through the microglia and the astrocytes and 
and based on you know functional signals and whether something is needs to be pruned out, arborization needs to be pruned, or or signals need to be amplified. There's um, you know several active processes, and it seems that if we're going to um, have these very complex informational processing systems, that um, for one they're replicable, so you know we actually have a product that we can we can put and replicate, but also um, it has a dynamic way of correcting these aberrant signals, much like natural biological systems do. Uh, so if you're so in for a penny, you're in for a you gotta you gotta you gotta go a little further. I just think of those. Remember those? I don't know if you've seen them. But they did those experiments where I don't remember what country it was, but basically there was these worms or these tunneling animals or something uh -huh. like that. And, uh, or it might've been just bacteria in a dish. I don't know, whatever. But the idea was that these animals, like one of the things that they do is they go from one side of something to the other, but they figure out the most efficient path of doing it. And, and through trial and error, you know, over many, over many trials, um, they figure out how to burrow the most efficient pathways from point A to point B. And so they took worms or whatever it was and they put them on one side of the trial and there's a bunch of obstacles and stuff in the middle of this dish and and basically it was like dirt or something like that and they put food on the other end and so the animals figured out what was the most efficient way to tunnel um mm -hmm. over to the other side and then they did that but the the arena or whatever it is that they were doing it one was the layout of the city and so by doing that, they found the most efficient pathways for subway systems in order to traverse through the city. Well, and cool. so, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, so it was sort of like a, a natural way of pruning out all of the bad pathways by figuring out biologically what's the most efficient way to do it. And so if you're talking about, you know, a way that you can program in developmental biology into neural networks was sort of like you have given birth to this baby neural net and yeah. yeah. And then over trial and error, it figures out what is the best way to arrange itself for the certain function that it is. Right. And, and so there's that whole developmental trajectory. And so does that mean you could like eventually get to a point that you could have a, a blank slate? We said, you know, we say here's all of the, ingredients that are necessary in order to make a neural network here it is and then give it a training set of whatever it is and it like it, every one would specialize towards whatever it's being you would in, used for you would in essence give it an upbringing right and so like everyone could be slightly different depending on what it's used for yeah, because we know that, you know, the order and the severity of environmental experiences shapes the development. So you, you would be you would be raising <laughs> Raise synthetic life. Chat GPT Tamagotchi. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in essence, you know, we're we're talking about a synthetic life, not that it's alive. Yeah, but that it um, you would start in principle from some genome that has rules of, 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 of growth and development. And there's sensory inputs, there's outputs. Um, 
you know, you could do the old. I I tend to think, you know, I tend to think metabolism is more important in perception than we give it a lot of credit for. I think um, I don't think the neurons get all the energy they want. They may want to do things, but they may not have the energy to at certain times. I think, because that would certainly be the case in our evolution that, you know, we don't always have enough food. Yeah. And, um, you know, whether there's, you know, you could think of, well, let's, let's say whenever the neuron wants to fire, it's got enough energy to do so. But if there, if, if, if the whole system is operating in less than those, less than optimal conditions, then, um, it's, you know, I guess an analogy would be, um, you, you know, in scarcity, behavior in, in scarcity, it's, it's, it's more competitive. It, it, um, you know, not everything works right. Some places are, you know, function better than others. If, the astrocytes are actually managing the energy budget and and controlling the metabolism, which we do know. They connect to the vasculature. They make mm-hmm. their own glycogen. They'll turn glucose into lactose and feed it to the neurons. Um, so energetically, the neurons are downstream from the astrocytes. If there's, if, you know, are the neurons always happy? Do they always get everything they want? Or is there actually a competition? Um, of in, and they operate mostly in suboptimal conditions and they need, is that, you see what I'm, is that? Yeah. Yeah. Basically the, the astrocytes are theoretical. I mean, this is hypothetical, but they may be, um, gating how much energy is going to one system versus another based on. As a dynamic contextual. Yeah. Which I don't think is out of the realm. I mean, even in things like the lungs, for example, or, you know, with any of the like pulmonary vasculature or even with in the brain and stuff like that, if there's an underventilated part of the lung. So basically like when you, when you take a breath, there's this gradient that it fills up, right? It doesn't just like mm-hmm. fill all of your lungs up at once. And, uh, <clears throat> so under normal conditions, like the, you can think of it as like the bottom of the lung is, has more perfusion of blood just because of gravity. Mm-hmm relative to the top of the lung. And then based on when you take a breath in, it sort of fills up either at the bottom or the top first, depending on which position you're laying at. But anyways, if there's any part of your lung, if you're not taking super deep breaths or something like that, if, if there's part of your lung that isn't getting as much air versus that of somewhere that's being more mm-hmm. hyperventilated, then the pulmonary vasculature will constrict within that underventilated area to shunt all the blood over to where it's actually getting air. Mm. And so it matches the blood right. flow to that. Yeah. And so like, it's sort of, that's a whole nother mechanism of modulation in, right. in that you can just sort of play hunger games with different <laughs> population, literally hunger <laughs> games with different populations of neurons based on their performance. Jeez. See, see, this is where I think a lot of these models can give intuition into what we should be testing biologically, but, uh-huh. That's just me. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so we've got, you know, in order if we're gonna spatially embed things, it's gonna get so complicated and so expensive, we're gonna have to have a way to grow them. So we're gonna need developmental trajectory rules and a basic genome. 
to express these these uh, synthetic organisms and give them an upbringing. So, so you know, canned curricula and environmental experience, you know, yeah. Truman Show stuff. Um, and and then you know, then what do we have? Do we have something that's smarter? Do we have something that um, can learn and generalize better than what we can today on fewer examples? Ah, which is the key. And that's the point. Right. And that's what we're that's what we're after is something fewer. that can pick up and generalize with fewer input. Or yeah. Hmm. Yeah, we don't need to study the entire freaking internet to have an intelligent conversation. <laughs> but then yeah. how would it Well, I guess you would just have to give it access to things, right? Like cuz I'm just thinking like how would how would it be able well, like Well, what, you know, there's no organism that if you just raise in a dark box it's going to be pretty smart. Right. You know, right, that's what I'm thinking. It has to have a rich environment. I'm thinking and, of like a homeschooled kid, you know, that like it's all functional. There's just something a little off. <laughs> <laughs> hey, <laughs> that was not cool. But, 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 um, yeah. Do we have the early generation, you know, that had it rough and, and would, would tell the next generation of these things, you know, back in the day where, you know, we didn't, <laughs> you know, the lights were dim and it was cold and we had to um, you know, do it. What, because that's going to get into social structure, culture, oral tradition, experience by example. Um, so, so then yeah. how, what's the way to phrase the question? So, so how then, if you do have the ability, like, 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 let's say that you can create a self or not a self generated, but basically like a developmental AI type of model system that's able to be the most efficient that it needs to be for the task that it does and it specializes in and it's able to adapt specifically to what it needs to do and it can do it with fewer inputs but is it still going to need to be able to have access to information somewhere rather than just have it stored within the model itself i would i would argue yes i would because i would i would go further that it you know it shouldn't be on a classical von Neumann architecture at this point. And that gets into some of these um, more advanced architectures because power is a huge problem. Eventually, we, I mean, the most flexible computing systems are the ones we're familiar with. Um, these new art, new hardware architectures, neuromorphic architectures, uh, and they're come in, there's a lot of activity going on in new, new programming models. But because they're new programming models, not everybody knows how to program them, and it's difficult. But there's a huge need for low-power computing. We can get by on about 20 watts. You know, that, that doesn't get you much. That's about what my laptop consumes, too. It doesn't mm -hmm. get you much computing in a von Neumann architecture. But um, so having these really complex systems, spatially embedded, um, that have to grow and and um, you know have to be fault tolerant or somewhat self repairing or you know one one mistake and the whole thing is you know abandoned. 
you know, the, the closer the, the metaphor to a living system, but not really living. So we think <laughs> yeah. that, that, that'll be the philosophy discussion. Sentience but in the dish. Sentience <laughs> in a dish. Well, I, I think what we really need to go to is that physical embedding. And that brings in, that certainly brings me home to chemical systems and, um, in electrochemistry and self-assembling systems and novel materials. And I think that, um, you know, these, these models that, you know, in order to get to these spatially embedding information processing systems, um, getting them off the exascale computing platforms and onto a physical embedded system, you know, we're going to need these novel computing architectures and, and physical systems. And it's going to be then embodied synthetic intelligence. <laughs> is there is there a disadvantage of modeling a lot of these things based on the biological architecture of the brain? Well, is it, is it sort of one of those like, I don't want to say catch 22, but one of those things where it's like, that's all that we know for intelligence. So it kind sure. of, but if you're going to get off the train and say, oh, okay, the large language models have it, they're going to um, achieve superhuman intelligence. They'll take over. We'll be their slaves. We'll be but a dot in the history. We're a stepping stone towards, you know, along the path of, of intelligence evolution. And, you know, um, all of the computer scientists that, that that went into creating the large language models were correct and should be exalted in, you know, thank you for our extinction. You can go there. <laughs> I don't personally, I'm not compelled by it. I think there's plenty of mysteries yeah. that, um, that are left to uncover in biology. And I can, I think that we would do, we will do uh, much better at AI if we uncover those deeper biological metaphors. Yeah. Well, and that's always sort of the, the thing that I've always questioned, at least in any of the AI talks that I've been in is that whenever they bring it up as to modeling, you know, the perfect simulation of the human brain in order to create intelligence, but it's only based off of our limited knowledge of the brain to begin with. Like we don't know everything that there is to know about the brain. And so you can never create a perfect model of the brain because all you're doing is modeling an incomplete blueprint to begin well, and, with. And at some point, well, within system engineering, at least, if to just take a systems engineer take, um, you know, you keep an eye on the requirements of the system and, and you have means of assessing its performance. And you can ask yourself for the applications you have in mind. Um, yeah, we want a flexible system where we can grow in principle a, a, a wide range of intelligence for particular applications, when they perform well enough um, and they're practical enough and cost-effective enough, who, who's to say how human-like those actually are? I mean, at that point, you really don't kind of, you really don't really want them to be human-like. You know, you don't want to hear them start to complain about things. <laughs> well, yeah. well, that's what that's what I, I've always wondered about some of the biology based modeling systems that are being used for things other than informing information about biology is that it's the biology is not a perfect system. Not at all. 
Right. And, and so like, why are we striving to create a imperfect system to do something that we might be able to just get rid of some of the, but it's, it's beyond exuberant to think that you've got a better idea. Yeah. Well, that's, that's where, you know, that's what I was wondering is, is the limitation, like what else do we do? I, I still, well, I, I mean, I won't get off the train. I'm still on the train that there's, there's more to learn about biology. That's going to help us Oh yeah. in, in the AI endeavor. You know, it's going to help us improve our AI models. And it's um, going to help us. I, I think creating the AI system is going to help inform us of possible things to study in the brain. I So I hear a lot of enthusiasm about computer science helping neuroscience. I, 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 I'm really suspicious about <laughs> solid examples there. I, I know that... Um, and, you know, being I'm just growing up with computer science from very early age, I know there's a there's it's wrought with slippery slopes thinking you've, you know, you're you've you've got it. You're yeah. on. You found it, you know, or, or you know, there's some com compelling and seductive math that that, you know, just just does it. And you think that's how it works. And um and what's really worse in the computer science is then you can go write code that does it and on toy examples and say, see, I have a functional system. I've got it. I've got the universe right where I want it. That's 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 kind of, you know, one of the things that because we do modeling in some of the things for our studies, you know, in order to inform some hypothesis. But basically, they're just based on presumed biophysical mechanisms of the components within the system. But even then, as we found out with a lot of things, you can make the model do whatever you want it to do. So it can, it can recreate pretty much any behavior that you want it to, just depending on how you change the inputs and the outputs and the weights and, and, and the well, parameters. And, and that's the point of models. If you want certain behavior, you go create a model that gives you that behavior. Right, right. That's, but it that, may not. That's what they're for. You know, that's that's not. You know, you didn't catch anybody at something. That's what they're for. Yeah, and I think that takes a, a little while. It took me a little while. I know I can say personally until I finally had that aha moment of, uh, and it was like we were modeling opioid mm -hmm. effect. We were modeling the opioid effect on the brain or whatever, and you know, and so we had simulated putting in an opioid on the, on, on the network. And then, you know, one of the, one of the criticisms was, well, how did you simulate the opioid? And so I had to go back to the computational people that, you know, I was collaborating with and I was like, Hey, how did you simulate the opioid? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it was just a reduction in the synaptic strength of, sure. the, of the neurons yeah. within yeah. the network. It was just like a graded reduction in the synaptic strength. And I realized that, that, wait a minute, like if all we're doing is like we're just simulating something that we presume, like we know opioids reduce synaptic strength, of course, but there's still a lot that we don't know about it. But like that, it's a convenient way to simulate one aspect of it that might give us information. And then it was sort of realized that, oh, we can sort of make models do whatever we want. Well, you, you can. It's certainly trivial ones. Yes, uh, yes. As the model... Um, Having been on stage in, in front of technical audiences many times defending large-scale molecular dynamics simulations, 
some of which are, you know, hard-nosed physics types that, 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 you know, and it's a whole separate sideshow and, you know, the dialogue between chemists and physicists. But the, um, I might, you know, I, I often pull a favorite quote from Einstein that, that models need to be as simple as they can to explain the data, but no simpler. Hmm. And if the data is complicated, it sometimes requires, or I mean, if you're, if you, if, if the phenomena you're trying to explain is simple enough for a simple model, great, you win. You got a simple model. Hmm. If it's, if it, if it, your model doesn't quite fit all the data, well, it needs to get more complicated. And some people are slow on the take to that because they love simple systems that they can describe on the back of an envelope. Personally, I, I, I'm quite a fan of complexity, and um, so I, I, I've always had an affinity to choose problems that you know can't be described on the back of an envelope, yeah, and that, that have some some structure to them. But so models that you know going through the process for um, for the discovery that we made with Rhodopsin to sort of bring it back. The big discovery was the role of water during the activation of GPCRs in the sense that the um, Rhodopsin hosts a, a cofactor, a retinal cofactor, that is in a, a cis conformation sort of event. The, when it absorbs a photon, that isomerizes to trans. Well, that shape um, has an effect on the, on the protein. The big question of the day was how does that one, the energy in that one photon drive this entire protein to open in this whole flower configuration such that a G protein can recognize it and the cascade can start. And what we found was that water came rushing in during over the course of a microsecond of simulation, which was a long time in the day. Water comes rushing in. And essentially, through osmotic stress experiments, 10 years of lab work later, we the amount of water that we predicted in the simulation is about the same as the amount of water that we measured reproducibly in the lab. And what that story tells is that there's a wet-dry cycle that these seven transmembrane GPCRs have evolved around. The wet-dry cycle has always been there. It's a physical phenomenon. And the difference between opening and closing and having water rush in or not is enough of a change in environment to evolve a, a signaling protein around. That The model to predict that was not a simple model. Hmm. And, and the fact that that prediction, it was, um, you know, it sent me on my roadshow for a few years. And, it, and when I started, you know, People would kind of think I'm nuts, and by the end of it, and, oh yeah, water activation. Sure, everybody's heard that. Um, you know, it take takes a while for that story to. As I, I found that the the best ideas that you have in science are usually the ones that people are the most angry about. Oh yeah, yeah. If there's the, if there's a huge pushback, then you you're probably doing it good. You're, you're on to something, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if they think it's obvious three years later. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem. You just have to you just have to push through those three years. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But but the but so you know the complexity of models. I mean, you really got to be careful about 
fidelity when you're modeling something because you can easily deceive yourself into um you know thinking you've you okay you've nailed a trend with a simple model simple regression or some nonlinear fit or something um or a simple network how does it really perform outside of the training set can it you know how how good is it and you have to vet it and you have to connect it to experiment and you know it can be a lot of work to get a really good model so bringing it all together how going forward does the dynamics of astrocytes or modeling of of you know some of their functions or the the topology um like what is what is necessary besides just money i was gonna say insert coin i'm good <clears throat> yeah i know that that's always <laughs> always, always going to be the, the case but like how how like like are, are these things being done? Do you know at the moment, or what is it going to take to push some of the the models forward? So the, it's going to take an advancement in many areas at once. Each of those areas have to have their own um, economics to them. So mm -hmm. neuromorphic computing that's advancing. The economics is lower power computation, and you know, and, and uh, more embedded systems and AI, and that that's its own economy. We'll see advances there. Um, the uh, understanding more about astrocyte function, um, we we still need to understand more about you know information processing and dendrites. We need better models and dendrites to even begin better models and astrocytes. So th there's certainly more biology we need to learn there about the function. Um, the development of the models of astrocytes, when we have better models and better experimental setups where we can start to test these assumptions and test the abstractions and test the, the math and how we represent the, the critical phenomena that we're looking at, um, you know, we'll, we'll see an evolution of practicality and practical models, but it's going to be a synthesis in connecting the advances of neuromorphic computing with the advances in the AI models. And that's one of the more fascinating things to me is um, is the cross-fertilization, the multidisciplinary aspects of putting several advances together at once for a completely new, um, haha, emergent capability. Now we are officially back. Okay. Little, uh, little hiccup in technology as we talk about technology, but. So yeah, we were, we were to the point where many technologies have to come to a certain level of maturity. And, you know, there's, there's gotta be a synthesis where they all get put together towards this, you know, this vision. So, so how I'm thinking like there's, so there has to be a more advanced interplay between biology informing uh we've got to get what we need out of biology that was the or a smartest model. sentence i've said <laughs> well yeah so we need we need to get better models and i think biology is still our best you know form fountain of inspiration there we need better hardware that we can embed and lower lower power we need 
uh, developmental protocols to grow complex embeddings with mm. topography and appropriate uh, spatially distributed processing to leverage these improved models like biology does. And then there's going to be a host of applications that, as I mentioned, we, you know, we need an upbringing for these things. Um, and, you know, special purpose grown synthetic <laughs> that can it's, do things, you know, that useful. It's wild to think that you'd have like, you know, these AI farms. The AI farm, yeah. But they would have to know their own bodies. So the robotic systems that mm. represent how they influence the world and what they do. I mean, you know, do we really just want to talk to AI? The, you know, the rest? No, we're going to want them to do things. That well, well, that's what I was wondering is like from a consumer standpoint, you know, obviously there's going to be behind the scenes uses for these systems for very specialized tasks. But as far as, let's say, you know, mom and pop reading the paper, and trying to figure out, you know, they fire up their computer and see how they can use an AI that has been specially generated. What well, is some of the implications for that? So the, you know, the, the mom and pop applications, the consumer oriented applications, there's a, a lot of people thinking about that. That's an area where I don't often think too much. Um, think about it in terms of civilization. And how wasteful um, operations of, you know that exist, and how might we improve civilization, um, both terrestrial and space exploration, as as well as um, subterranean type of explorations, marine expo explorations. Uh, what are areas that are difficult and challenging and dangerous for people to operate in? that we can have specialized systems to perform useful functions that, you know, ultimately help the economy and helps the supply chain and help, help consumers. Um, but in terms of, you know, what can you can download on your phone and what new bells and whistles? I, it's, it's not been my focus. Hmm. Well, it's exciting stuff. My mind has been blown <laughs> as a simple, simple neuroscientist. <laughs> it's, wow. well, it's funny because, you know, when you see, especially in the neuroscience, like I said, I straddle neuroscience and I straddle physiology, right? My background is in physiology uh -huh. and then I made the transition to bridge that with neuroscience because Fun fact, I originally, when I wanted to get into higher education, I applied for the neuroscience programs because I thought the brain was really cool and I got denied from everything pretty bad, like really hard, which was like, you know, whatever it is what it is. I didn't have a lot of background in molecular chemistry or any sort of biochemistry or any, I didn't have any calculus. I didn't have pretty much all the prerequisites that you needed for a scientist. I had none. Right. And, and, uh, and so I, I got denied from all of that, but I ended up going into physiology and then, um, by way of physiology, I studied breathing, which is primarily neurally controlled. And so that's how we sort of backdoored our way into the brain and, you know, 
ended up at a very prestigious neuroscience lab. But, but, um, you know, the interesting thing is, is I think like how neuroscience is thought of from a biological perspective compared to how it's thought of sometimes from a computational standpoint, I think there's still a lot of interdisciplinary inf inf informative collaborations that can occur in order to inform one of the other and vice versa. Because I think if you take someone that just purely studies electrophysiology or the biology of the brain, I think there's a sort of a, a narrow understanding of what the implications of the work can be. If it's just informing that of a disease model, for example. Okay. Oh, certainly. I think, I mean, we hear a lot about collaboration, but I still think it's underrated. I yeah. think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in people talking to one another, especially entrepreneurial people or people that just like to bring things together and build systems. Finding uh, components from different areas of expertise and putting them together is um, there's 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 so many systems that are ready for that type of innovation that yeah. are just on left on the table <laughs> yeah like i can tell you when we're stimulating with a laser the astrocytes we would have never it would have never come up in my wildest thoughts that this could inform some ai system you know really <laughs> well you just think of like oh i just hit it with a laser some things happen the mouse either goes <gasps> or it doesn't you know <laughs> <laughs> but but uh no, it, it's cool, and, and I'm glad that uh, we were able to have this talk to sort of uh, blow my mind as to some of those things. And and again, I think it's important for the user base or for the listener base and stuff like that to realize the the implications that do have there, because we do have a lot of scientists and a lot of uh, engineering type of of individuals that type to 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 listen in. And I think bridging the two can have its benefits. So, well, it's with, been great fun. I've really enjoyed the time, and I. I'm, I'm glad to hear you did as well, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. And just for housekeeping, www. Actually, no, the, the website's gone. So rss.com slash neuronetwork, Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, I think. Every podcast player that you can think of, we're probably on there. So with that, thanks, Serena. Well, thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure.